Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But the book of Hebrews is a very unique book among the New Covenant Scriptures. Do you know that over 30 times the Hebrew Scriptures are quoted in the book of Hebrews? That's the most, uh, or the book that quotes the Hebrew Scriptures more than any other uh, book in the New New Covenant Scriptures, in the New Testament Scriptures. It is a book that focuses on the Jewish people. And that ought to be of interest to us, especially those of us who are Jewish and believe, but also because our desire is to bring the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I mean, it's a book addressed to the Jewish people. And what do we know about some of these people that the book is addressed to? What do we know about the author and the one who has written it? What are the themes of the book of Hebrews? What are some of the characteristic traits and uniquenesses of this book that calls our attention attention to it? On the one hand, the question is, and these are mysteries really about this book, but one of the questions I would raise is, who wrote this book? Who is the author? It's very unique in that respect because when you read this book and you get to the end of this book or letter, some people even question whether it's a book or not, and I'll share that with you in a moment, but when you get to the end of the quote-unquote book, you'll see that much of what we read there is characteristic of the letters that we find in the New Covenant New Testament Scriptures. It ends with a blessing. It ends with a final greeting. It ends with an admonition. It ends with the kinds of things that we see in our other letters. But what's unique about this book is the way it begins. It doesn't begin like any other uh, book in the New Testament. It doesn't begin like any of the letters. For example, it just starts, in days of old, God spoke uh, to the fathers by his prophets in many ways and at many times. At least the Greek can be translated that way. It doesn't start out by saying, I, and tells us the writer, writing to whom he's writing. Nothing like that uh, is found. And in fact, when you get to the end of the book, I think it's chapter 12 or 13, the writer tells us and he encourages them to listen to his word of exhortation. He doesn't say, listen to the words of my letter, listen to the words of my epistle or the words of my book. There are some people who believe that the book of Hebrews was in reality a sermon and that it was a homily that this particular writer had written down for many other people to read. Uh, in addition to those who heard him present it. There are some that would say, no, it couldn't be a sermon because, well, it's pretty long. 
And by the time you got to the fourth chapter, probably he would have lost everyone's, you know, attention. And some of the things that he speaks about are so intricate and they're so difficult to ascertain. It's amazing uh, that it would have been delivered as a sermon. And the people that he's writing to, he's concerned about because they have not gone on to spiritual maturity. That's his main concern in this book. He says, for example, that while they are now uh, learning the word, he says they ought to be teachers of the word. And so if he was giving them this kind of information, knowing that they had not yet arrived at that level of spiritual maturity, well, he was teaching them some very intense and very heavy stuff. And like I said, probably by the fourth chapter, he probably would have lost them. So it's hard to say whether this was a book crafted as a letter, whether it was a sermon that was delivered and then copied down. And we still don't know who is the one who wrote it. There are many different suggestions by various scholars. Of course, the premier suggestion is that this is Paul. This is another one of his letters. And the earliest believers in the first century, they tell us that, and I'm making a reference to Clement of Alexandria, he lived around 200 or so. He tells us that he believed, and it was believed by the early believers, that Paul wrote it in Hebrew and that later it was translated by Luke into Greek. And the reason for that is because the themes and ideas that are found in the book of Hebrews are very similar, and they're certainly consistent with what Paul writes in other passages. But what is different about this letter than Paul's other letters is the style, the grammar, and vocabulary is unlike any other letter Paul has written. Now, someone might argue, well, he's writing to a different audience with a different frame of mind and a different concern, and that might have something to do with the stylistic changes, the grammatical changes, and the vocabulary changes. And that may be true, but that's where we can leave it. It's sort of a mystery. We don't really know who wrote this book. And the reason they attribute it to Luke's translation is because the Greek in Hebrews is a very high quality. And it's very similar to the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, which also is written in a very high-quality Greek as well. And so those comparisons have led some to believe, and Clement's statement around 200 or so, uh, that it was written by Paul. But there have been dissenters, and there have been others that have thought someone else wrote it. And one that sort of intrigues me is that uh, the suggestion that Barnabas wrote this letter or presented this Presentation And why Barnabas? Well, first of all, um, Barnabas was a Levite. We find that in the book of Acts. And we find that in the book of Hebrews, there is so much focus on the temple worship and the priesthood. And so the association with Barnabas is one who was a Levite, who would have known about the temple worship, would have known about the Levitical uh, priesthood and the Levitical regulations. And because a lot of that is found in the book of Hebrews, in fact, more time and space is spent on referring to Yeshua, Jesus, as our great high priest and his connection with the Aaronic priesthood and Levitical priesthood seems to lead credence to perhaps this was a Levite who wrote it, and if so, what Levite do we know? Well, we know of Barnabas. But there's another interesting thing, because when you get to the end of the book, as I said, he challenges the people to pay attention to his word of exhortation. That Greek word exhortation is the very same Greek word that describes Barnabas as a man of consolation or encouragement. 
And so some have said, well, because Barnabas is described with the very same term that this writer closes the letter with, perhaps Barnabas is the one who wrote this letter. There have been other suggestions. You know, someone had even suggested that it was Priscilla and Aquila who had written this letter. Those that had discipled Apollos, you remember, and had served in Corinth and was in, uh, a, a couple that were important to Paul's ministry, especially in uh, Corinth and in that area in Europe. But the only problem with that is we only have a singular. It's not pay attention to our exhortation. And what's also interesting is that in one uh, passage where the writer, I think it's chapter 11, verse 25 or 12, 25, he speaks about listening to me and what I tell you in my exhortation. The word me is a pronoun. And that pronoun in Greek can be understood as either masculine or neuter pronoun. It can be applied in a feminine context or a masculine context, but the participle or an adjective in Greek that goes along with the pronoun must match in its gender. And so when you get to what I am telling you, that's a Greek participle, and it's in a masculine form. So the writer, at least we know this much, was a man. So now we've narrowed down our field, you know, to men. Well, it doesn't narrow it down that much. But we at least know that it wasn't Priscilla who was part of of the writing. You know, it was Martin Luther who in the 1500s suggested that it was Apollos. And that because of the high quality of Greek associated with Apollos who was from Alexandria. And we are told in the book of Acts he was a man of eloquence. And so Martin Luther thought that it might have been Apollos. And there have been a slew of other suggestions. The bottom line is, we don't know. But that raises the question, why didn't the writer tell us who he was? Why didn't he let us know who the, who the author was? And there have been various suggestions on that, but I'll tell you what I think might be true about this, and that is the writer opens up, and check this out in verse 1, He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then turn with me to uh, chapter 12. I think it's chapter 12, verse 25. And get this. He says in verse 25, chapter 12, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So you have the book opens up with God spoke. It has this lead into a close by saying, don't reject the voice of the one who spoke. And, you know, over 30 times there are quotations from the Hebrew scriptures and not once does the writer ever say something like, Isaiah said, or or, David said, or Amos said. He quotes the prophets and every time he quotes the prophets, he always says, and God said. So you have the opening line says, God spoke. You have the middle section of the book of Hebrews always affirming God continued to speak through the prophets, even though he used 
human instrumentation. He spoke through the prophets. And then at the end, while speaking of his own letter, he says, do not refuse him. It's in the present tense, him who is speaking to you even now. So my feeling is that the reason he doesn't tell us who he is who is writing it is because he does not want them to associate himself with this word, but rather he wants them to associate God with this word. And so this is not me speaking to you. This is God speaking to you. And therefore, you need to listen attentively to what he has to say. Now, if you look at verse 1, and we'll only take a look at maybe the first three verses or so. And of course, that means we'll be here for months and months, you know, to get through this book. I'll try not to. I really will try to move us along. But there's so many fascinating things about this book. Oh, we didn't talk about who it's written to. It's written to Jewish people, but it's very clear that the Jewish people he is writing to or speaking to are Jewish people who came to faith subsequent to the ministry of Messiah. In other words, these are second-generation Jewish believers. He makes it very clear that they did not hear Jesus speak to them directly. They had heard through those who had. And he includes himself among them. So this is not an apostle among the twelve or eleven. This is one who heard from them what Yeshua had done. And so he, and he makes this clear in, uh, in chapter 2. So we know these are second-generation Jewish believers. We also have an idea of when this book was written. It had to have been written after 50 AD because he mentions at the end in the greeting that Timothy sends his greetings to you. Now, we know that Timothy was led to faith by Paul, or at least discipled in the early uh, ministry of Paul, which is around 50. So we know that he connects with, Paul, with Timothy, Paul connects with Timothy, around 50. So it's at that era that he gets engaged in the ministry that's going on. So that means this book, since Timothy is mentioned, and Timothy doesn't get into the ministry with Paul until 50, it had to be written after 50 sometime. Now, also what's interesting is that one of the early leaders at the congregation in Rome was a man by the name of, referred to as Clement of Rome. And he led that congregation from around 92 through 98 AD. And in 96, we have a letter from him to variety of believers in which he quotes almost verbatim the entire first chapter of the book of Hebrews. So that tells us it had to have been written before 96 and after 50, somewhere between 50 and 96. We also know that he makes reference to the ongoing, he used the present tense of the sacrificial system. So that means it had to be written before 70 AD because it's in 70 AD that the temple is destroyed. He would have spoken about it in the past tense if he wrote after 70. So that's narrowing the field a bit more. Had to be after 50, had to be before 70. And because he's warning these Jewish believers about going on in the faith, 
rising to the maturity that God is leading them in, not to revert back into a state of, I don't want to say rejecting Messiah, for he's not concerned about that so much as he is identifying with the Jewish community that had rejected Messiah. He's forewarning them about that because judgment will fall. It appears that he probably wrote this letter or gave this message somewhere around 64, 65. I say that because the first Jewish revolt takes place in 66. And in 70 AD, the judgment falls that destroys Jerusalem. What is the judgment that the writer is concerned about is not their loss of salvation. It is them getting swept up in the judgment that's going to hit the Jewish people in 70 AD when the temple's destroyed and the city of Jerusalem is ruined. So there are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. And the warnings are that are essentially this. Do not renege upon your faith in refusing to move forward in it and to be faithful to it in thinking that if we renege on our faith, the Jewish people who have rejected him, the Jewish leaders will accept us and life then will be bearable. Because these Jewish believers are in Jerusalem or in Israel, and they're undergoing a great deal of persecution. Remember that when Paul goes on his quote-unquote missionary journeys, one of the reasons he's doing that is to raise money for the Jewish believers in Israel who are suffering for their faith. He calls them the poor because they're being ostracized. And as a consequence, he goes throughout the new world or the Roman Empire, he plants congregations, and then he reminds them, if these individuals have ministered to your spiritual needs, you have a responsibility to minister to their physical needs. And so he's raising money to help alleviate their suffering. So these Jewish believers are suffering because of their faith. And this writer is concerned that these believers may not go forward in their faith in the hope that they will no longer be persecuted and they'll be able to have a normal life. The writer to the Hebrews is warning them, do not think that that will happen because judgment is coming and it's going to sweep up the Jewish nation. And if you do not go on in your faith and listen to Messiah, you will get caught up in the judgment with the nation. And so he's pleading with them to be faithful to Messiah so as to avert the judgment that will fall. Now, things get very technical here, and I don't want to get too engrossed in this, but this all revolves around the most important chapter in the account of the life of Messiah. The most important chapter, and this is not having to do with his redemption, his death, resurrection, but the most important chapter to understand what's going on in the first century with regard to Messiah's manifestation of himself to his own people is Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, there's a very unique episode in the life of Messiah. Messiah heals a man who is both blind and he cannot speak. And when he heals him, the people say, is this not the son of David? Is this not the Messiah of Israel? Now the Jewish leadership are forced to answer this question. Is he or isn't he? But before we reflect on how they answered the question, there's a prior question. 
Why did they raise this question to the leaders of their day, whether or not this is the Messiah? Why did the healing of this man born blind and cannot speak, or this man who is blind and cannot speak, why did it prompt the question, is this not the son of David, the Messiah of Israel? And the reason it prompted that question is because Yeshua performs a miracle that the rabbis had taught only the Messiah would perform. It is what we would refer to as messianic miracles that Messiah performs. There are many miracles he does, but they're not all messianic. When he walks on water, that's a miracle, but it's not a messianic miracle. When he calms the sea, it's a miracle, but it's not a messianic miracle. But when he heals a man who cannot speak, that's not only a miracle, it's a messianic miracle. Why is it a messianic miracle? Because the rabbis taught that when the Messiah comes, only he will enable a person who couldn't speak to be able to speak. Why did they say that? Well, Yeshua gives us an indication because later Yeshua says to the leaders, if I, by the power of Beelzebub, have been able to heal this man, how do your disciples or your own followers do it? In other words, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day performed miracles. But when they performed miracles of one kind or another, they had various formulas in order to perform them. One of the formulas that the rabbis tell us about and that we can read in some of the Jewish literature was the necessity to have the name of a demon in order to cast it out. Remember, this individual was uh, possessed by a demon or was caused to be uh, unable to speak and wasn't able to see because of demonic activity. And the rabbi said that whenever a demon was to be cast out, we would get the name of the demon, and then by utilizing that name, we would cast the spirit out. But in this episode, we have a serious problem. The individual cannot speak. And so the rabbi said, when there's an individual who, because of demonic activity, can't speak, we can't heal that individual because we can never get the name of the spirit in order to cast it out. But in this case... Yeshua doesn't do that. He just says, depart, and the man is healed. Now, there's an instance where Yeshua does use a demon's name. You remember the man of Gadara? He says, who are you? They say, we are legion, for we are many, and he causes them to go into some pigs or something like that, right? But in this episode, he doesn't do that at all. He just simply heals the man without having to inquire what demon this is that's causing him not to speak. So the rabbi said, when we see somebody do that, that's the Messiah of Israel. That's a messianic miracle. That's a messianic sign. And therefore, the Messiah is among us. And that's why the people, when they saw Yeshua heal this man without having to ask who the demons are that are causing it, they say, well, isn't this the son of David? And now the Jewish leaders have to decide, is it or isn't it? Well, obviously, they're going to have to say no because they don't want to embrace him. But then they have to explain the miracle. And so they say, no, this is not the Messiah. Then how did this man get healed? And he says, he healed him by the power of Beelzebub himself. Now, the moment they attributed the work of Messiah to the evil one, they caused, they called down judgment upon themselves as a nation. And so on this occasion, Yeshua tells us that 
this sin will not be forgiven. Now, this is not a personal sin. This is a national sin led by the, nation, the leadership of Israel. It is not a sin that goes on today. It's a sin that has to do with the messianic ministry of Messiah. So it was something that only could have occurred when Messiah was performing his ministry, demonstrating he's the Messiah of Israel. It was tantamount to the leadership of Israel making its national declaration that we reject Yeshua as Messiah. The moment they reject him as Messiah nationally, Yeshua says judgment is now set. And the judgment would fall in 70 AD, some 40 years later, which the writer to the Hebrews will make a reference to, which we'll see when we go through the book. So what is the writer to the Hebrews concerned about? He's concerned with the fact that, number one, judgment will strike Israel for their rejection of Messiah. Notice, not their crucifixion of Messiah, that's something the Romans did, but their rejection of him as Messiah in Matthew chapter 12. So judgment is going to fall on the nation. And that judgment will be seen in the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. That fall is only four or five years away. This book was written around 64, 65, 66. That means this writer is seeing the handwriting on the wall as Israel is poised to rebel against Rome. And he now sees this is the judgment about which Yeshua had spoken. So he's telling these writers, these readers... Do not renege upon your faith in Messiah. Follow him and obey him. Do not think that if you fail to follow him and you seem to align yourself with the Jewish leadership of your day, that you will be accepted by them and that you will be averting that judgment. You will be caught up with them in that judgment. You will not survive. And so he's telling them, I don't want you to get caught up in the judgment that is coming. I want you to escape it. He's not talking about judgment of salvation. He's talking about judgment on Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple. Now, the interesting thing about this is that we have three historians that tell us the Jewish readers of this text listened to the writer to the Hebrews and did not get caught up in the judgment. We know that Josephus tells us, a Jewish historian, non-believer, he tells us that when Titus invaded Israel and broke through the three outer walls of Jerusalem and came to the temple itself, he did something that was unprecedented in Roman history. He gave the Jewish people that were caught in the temple compound area an opportunity to leave if they desired. And what Josephus tells us, what Eusebius tells us, a Christian, Gentile Christian historian, and what Hegesippus tells us, a Jewish Christian historian, tell us, all three of them agree on this fact, that when Titus lifted the siege around the temple, all the Jewish believers left. And they went to a place called Pella, which is in modern Jordan to this day, where they took refuge during this time. Now, why did they leave? Because Matthew and Luke record that when Yeshua was teaching on the end times, he told them that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. And so when Titus lifted the siege and said you could leave, 
all three historians tell us the Jewish believers in response to Jesus' teaching left Jerusalem. They headed to the mountains to Pella and they survived the destruction. The writer to the Hebrews is telling the readers, follow through in your faith, listen to Messiah. He's told us to leave Jerusalem when the walls are surrounded. Do that. And they did. Do not worry about what the Jewish leadership of their day who rejected Messiah will think of you. You will survive the judgment that is about to fall. By the way, historically, because of that moment, for the first time, Jewish believers are referred to as Meshumadim, traitors, because they left Jerusalem. But the reason these Jewish believers left Jerusalem was not because they weren't willing to fight against Rome, but they had a higher calling to obey their master, their Messiah and Savior, who said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Flee to the mountains, and that's what they did. So when you read of the warnings of judgment, it's the judgment of the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, not a judgment that might result in the loss of salvation. That is secure because of what Messiah has done for us. Now, in just, in, uh, just a couple of minutes, let me just bring us into the text. Is, is that kind of clear? We kind of get something there. It's a long way around the barn, but if we don't do that, it's like you read through this and you say, well, what is this about? You know, I don't get it. But what the writer's doing is trying to reinforce all of this stuff that Yeshua has been teaching. He wants them to grow in their faith. And what does that mean? It means we obey him. Spiritual growth is not about intellectual understanding. It's about our willful commitment to follow him wherever he leads and to wherever he calls. Now, one last thing I'll draw your attention to, although, and we'll come back to this next week. Look at this first verse. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We'll come back to this, but let me close with this. I think it's just remarkable what the writer says. The Lord spoke to us. Nowhere in Scripture, you know, for example, when you come to the book of Genesis and we read of the sin of Adam and Eve, you don't find Adam and Eve then calling upon God in order to be forgiven of their sin, right? It's God who calls upon them in order to lead them to a place of repentance. First question in the Bible, where are you? You know, Adam doesn't say, God, where are you? He's deliberately hiding from him, right? It's God who comes to him and says, speaks to him, where are you? You know, it wasn't Abraham who was looking for God, right? It was God who comes to Abraham and says, go to a land I will show you and I will bless you. God spoke to us. We did not speak to him. In fact, the scripture makes very clear that because of our sin, we are alienated from him. We don't cry out to him. We don't come to him. We attempt to avoid him and we attempt to hide from him. But it is God who seeks us out. And that is the wonder of the grace of God. He is seeking us out. And so here's the question. God is speaking Are we listening, you know? Are we allowing him to open our hearts that we would hear his voice and thereby be responsive to it? The failure of Israel and the failure of all peoples, whoever they are, 
is not in God somehow masking himself. It's our inability to hear him speak. And one of the neat things about this word where it says he spoke to us, speech is really the facilitator of fellowship, right? Speech is what enables individuals to be friends with one another, communication, connecting with one another. It's speech. And so what is God doing? When it says that he speaks to us, he's not just looking to inform us. He's seeking to have fellowship with us. In other words, he's desirous of having a relationship with us. And so the writer to the Hebrews is telling his readers, God has spoken to you. God's desire is fellowship with you. And his hope is that you will follow him and that you will walk in his ways. And so let me just leave you with this, that we need to pray that God would open our hearts to his voice, especially as we hear the words of the prophets, the words of the writers of scripture, that we would be responsive to them as his words are made clear to us. So let's pray. Our God and Father, as we go through this book and as we lay a foundation for it, our prayer, Lord, is that we would hear your voice. This is what the writer's concern is, that we would hear it loud and clear and be responsive to it. For the Jewish believers to whom he wrote, it meant, Father, following through in their faith so as to avoid that judgment that was to strike. For us, Father, it is necessary that we would hear your voice, that we would follow through in our walk with you, and that we would have deeper and deeper fellowship with you, and that, Father, we would also find ourselves experiencing life and having it more abundantly. So, Father, as we go through this wonderful, wonderful book, may we be just amazed by all that it teaches. And most importantly, Father, we pray that it would lead to our fellowship with you and our relationship with you would be deeper and grow deeper because of it. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.